I want to point out that I was looking at the stats and uh, we had a significant bump in listenership between uh, December and January, which Mm -hmm. I want to point out that is when Dan joined the podcast. Yeah. I, I, when I, I was looking at the stats and it's like, um, I was like, oh, where does this start? And it's like, uh, new year, new, new co-host. And it just like <laughs> yeah. that pod, that episode was huge. And then our biggest episode was the Mick Pinkerton's episode where, um, <laughs> where we had, uh, as of yesterday, 420 listens. Four nice. Hey, nice. There you go. That's how you know you've arrived when you've hit the weed number. And now yeah. we can't, we will not comment on our listenership again until we hit the uh, two orders of magnitude higher target of 42069. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be an event. Well, speaking of events, uh, this is the main event. This is an episode of Work Stoppage, everybody. I want to welcome you to the show. I'm one of your co-hosts, John. I'm Lena. I'm Dan. If you want to get twice as many episodes every month, remember to subscribe to the Patreon. If you want to check out more stuff that has to do with the show and be a bigger part of the community, join the Discord. And if you want to help us out a little bit in a way that doesn't cost you any money, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I don't even know if that still matters anymore. <laughs> Does that I, matter? Well, I still... I The whole reason... It- it's in our 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 talking points is specifically because everybody else still does it. <laughs> I was going to say podcasts yeah. have been saying this for like years. <laughs> well, speaking of stuff that's been going on for years, uh, we wanted to do a little bit of a follow up on Amazon fi- illegally firing uh, workers that we had been talking about previously on the show. Yeah, well, and and as like all good follow-ups go this actually this this episode is kind of a big follow-up because we're gonna be basically going over everything uh bessemer related and then a couple other little um related things um but yeah again starting with the uh two workers that were fired illegally the nlrb ruled Last week, uh, it would have ended up in last week's episode, but it was so jam-packed full that Amazon did illegally fire uh, two workers, Emily Cunningham and Marin Costa. um, And uh, specifically because they were part of Amazon Employees for Climate Justice. Right, which was a pretty interesting little organization where... Essentially, these workers had been paid in company stock, and then they got together and agreed to use their company stock plus their position at the company to write some kind of, I think it was a a shareholder uh, report or some kind of feedback that they all submitted an identical version asking Amazon to come up with a sustainable plan for going for addressing climate change going forward. Yeah, so like we've we've talked before about retaliation by Amazon that's been, you know, um, ruled illegal by the NLRB against their blue collar, their, their warehouse workers. Like a couple episodes ago when we talked about a Queens Amazon warehouse worker who had been disciplined by Amazon for leading a walkout. Uh, there and that was ruled illegal and so but this is more on like the office side of things the the white collar workers um 
these folks had basically been, like you said, organizing their coworkers to pressure Amazon to try and address its climate impact. But also, they were trying to show some solidarity with the uh, warehouse work staff, and were also trying to pressure Amazon to address the complaints of the shop workers that you know that we talk about all the time and are going to talk about a lot today. And so, Amazon basically told them, "Hey, you can't." You got to not stop. You got to not do this. (laughs) You got to stop stirring this shit up. And um, so in response to Amazon basically telling them to shut up, they organized a a group of 400 employees to to also speak out on the same points. Uh, And in response to that, Amazon was like, all right, fuck you and fired them. Right. And they fired them for technically some incredibly vague shit, like violating (laughs) their external communications policy. Right. Which was basically just like, hey, you badmouthed the company in public. You did something that is like literally one of the foundational points of organizing your coworkers right. in antagonism against the company. And like that violates our policies. So one of the points that I think I want to try to re- make a couple times on this particular episode is uh, framing Amazon as part of the state structure in, yeah. uh, in the United States. And this is kind of the beginning of what uh, gives an example, because without Amazon not having like a a climate policy and the being such a huge employer and such a huge impact on all of the things that are going on, we kind of have to recognize the way that this impacts everybody, not only just in our country, but in the whole world. And so through that, Amazon actually has a huge amount of power. And in this action of firing these people when they're trying to do something to get capitalism to do anything about this unprecedented issue that we're going to face and are facing currently, they are fired and they are basically told that they are not allowed to do any sort of protesting. And so through that, there is basically a censorship of of the workers' voices, of people's voices in general. And uh, and it's kind of shows with how 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 they actually managed to do this was like by being shareholders and workers and organizing like there's a lot of things in here that just gave them enough of a wedge to kind of bring a little bit of light to this issue and they were immediately silenced just like most people are based on workplace handbooks yeah you know like the 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 your Uh, what you have to wear, what you can and can't say to customers. There is actually a censorship program designed and built into every single job, but more so in Amazon and the scope that it actually hits. uh, We have to recognize that Amazon begins to look a little bit like a state apparatus. Yeah. And um, the things that you see with like these sorts of actions that are so frustrating is because like this is framed as like hey this is a victory the nlrb is like hey amazon what you did was bad but like they fired these folks a year ago and the ruling just happened and the ruling is just you have to make a settlement with the people that you fired because the way that you fired them was wrong but like the like silencing message, the intimidation factor has already been effective. <laughs> like, yeah, they're out. They're not going to yeah. suddenly be able to organize with the other Amazon workers again, just because they've received a settlement from it. Like Amazon is thrilled to pay a settlement instead of having active union organizers or climate organizers or whatever uh, in its workforce. That's a win for them. 
And right. this is the NLRB handing them a, a win that just has good PR on it, basically. Right. And that's, I think, going to continue to be, that's going to be one of the overarching, <laughs> I think, themes of this episode is, is just how U.S. labor law is so immensely weighted in favor of the employer. Mm-hmm. And then when you have an employer of such size, uh, like wealth, power, and thus political influence, and therefore, you know, intertwined nature with the state, that's all just, you know, compounded exponentially. And so I am glad the NLRB ruled that these people were illegally fired. Uh, but the frustrating thing about every single one of these stories is shows how completely toothless that process is. Cause it's right. like the, the, there's, there's no punishment that Amazon could get out of this process. that could possibly be worse than them. You know, that, that could seem worse in their eyes than allowing, like you said, a successful organizing effort. So they're going to fuck with this every time, whether it's legal or not. Right. Right. Well, cause like the NLRB and other regulatory bodies in the United States government are overseen by people whose pockets are directly filled and whose programs are partly laundered through and supported by Amazon's infrastructure. You know, their communication infrastructure holds up like 80 fucking percent of the internet. They don't even make like more than 20% of their money off of uh, sales on amazon.com. Like they, they heavily subsidize a lot of that with just like being the backbone of the internet. And if you think that that doesn't give them like... You know, it's like Lena said, they're basically part of the state. They can dictate how much and how many resources and how much of those resources they're going to allocate to different political projects and and get to do whatever they want. If the NLRB ever oversteps their authority and actually does hinder Amazon from doing what they want to do in a way that's more than just a little slap on the wrist, they will they will just retaliate <laughs> against elected mm-hmm. officials until it goes back to the way they want it to be. Right. And and we have to kind of look at like the way that these repercussions are coming down. Like even if for some reason these people are given, say, a year or two of back wages, which would be like pretty decent amount of money, I'm guessing uh, that still isn't necessarily enough in comparison to the fact that these people were actively ma- trying to make the world better and then were retaliated against and made an example of that's the thing is like this these people are an example if you are to like do anything you're going to get punished and it's going to be a year or more before you get any sort of comeuppance and and through that i mean people end up destitute through some of these like waiting processes waiting for the Mm -hmm. nlrb to hand down uh some sort of you know verdict in in favor of the workers and sometimes they don't even do that right and like the impact of of what they did like the chilling impact on on employee activism is so much beyond the scope of those couple of salaries like that action probably silenced hundreds if not you know thousands of employees or at least made them you know pare down their criticism so as to avoid being retaliated against in the same way yeah. so like uh, I know whatever penalty they would, they would apply is nowhere near quantifying it that way. And I don't, but I'm not sure how you would quantify it. Even if you could, that's why you have to have like stronger penalties than a fucking fine (laughs) to a a company that controls the entire like market of, of internet merchant space. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like if, if you, if you as a company get busted for firing people who are organizing, like, 
the only appropriate, the only like just thing to do would be to force that company to then not only reinstate that person, but then like automatically agree to whatever their project was, right. whether that's recognizing a union or coming up, you know, they weren't even asking for that much. They were just asking for the company itself to come up with an ecological plan that they could have easily just then not followed. Right. You know, like that's, that's the, they have an out at every level. And it's like, uh, I don't, you know, we, we, Amazon is one of those things where it's like, we have to take it over. <laughs> we have to, you know, nationalize it and then take over the government that it, <laughs> gets nationalized to maybe not even in that order. Um, yeah. So, uh, and in the same way that, uh, Amazon as a, it has a near hegemonic control over internet commerce, it does all, it is also going to have near hegemonic attention in this episode, because as I'm sure most, if not all of our listeners are aware, we just had, you know, one of the biggest news union elections in recent memory, uh, in the U S uh, down in Bessemer, Alabama. And so everyone's been coming in with their, their takes on it. And so we figured we'd devote basically the entire episode this week to summarizing the union drive and talking about some of the reactions to it, some of the, you know, takeaways, the, the different lessons that we can learn from this effort. Um, even though, you know, we didn't get, you know, a victory for, for the workers forming a union there. What can we take? What can we learn from that defeat? Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And and before we get into it, uh, because if we, if I don't preface it with this, I'm going to be like adding qualifiers throughout the whole thing. Uh, I just want to qualify like the critiques and criticisms we're going to go over through here with like huge props to the RWDSU organizers and all of the folks at the Bessemer plant who like did all of the on the ground work and will continue to do organizing work in the future. Right. Cause one of the things that like reading through all the postmortems that people were putting out this week, I feel like it was easy to lose sight in doing these like quick analysis takes. It's like, yeah, okay, well, there, I'm sure there are suggestions we're going to have, changes that could have been made, like rulings in hindsight, but I think it's critical to like acknowledge the incredibly difficult work that these organizers set themselves to, and we're going to get into like what they were up against and can, will continue to be up against as, as organizing struggles continue. But I just want to, mm-hmm. like, as we go into this, just start off being, like, huge props to them. Like, that's incredibly difficult work. And and you, even though this election didn't go their way, like, just want to, like, big ups to them. for Yeah, for absolutely. Work. That's super important. And uh, really is important for us to not lose solidarity with each other just because we had a loss at the NLRB. Right. Yeah. Cause this, 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 the workers didn't like the workers had the cards, like with card check, they would have a union. Right. I'm pretty sure that's right. Well, and like, uh, somebody has got to try first, you know, and if it doesn't succeed, then somebody has to try a second. Like you don't, you're, you, a lot of things aren't going to happen on the first try, yeah. whether that's like a historic union of Amazon workers or, you know, whatever else it takes 
practice. You learn from your mistakes and you also learn about what you're up against, not necessarily even making mistakes. And that's not even to say that there isn't a union in the Bessemer plant, to say that there isn't still like a group of workers who are able to do actions and able to affect change. But I think maybe we should get into the kind of story part of the episode where we kind of go over um, how this has all come to pass. Because I actually think that this is a context which is really interesting. Uh, Specifically, um, we have like at the beginning, people might not remember, but the Bessemer plant opened April 16, 2020. I think we need to, to, to start with that piece of information just to remember that like it didn't exist before last year. It started like right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic as yeah. well, like right before people were starting to take it seriously in the United States. Right. Yeah. So so fun this was already from the start a very fast moving uh union campaign. Cause like like you said, like this this facility opened less than a year ago. Right. And there were groups of workers who came to the RWDSU within a couple of months of it opening. So like yeah, this was getting off the ground real fast. Yeah, on March nineteenth, which was um, about a month later, it was reported that there were about fifteen hundred workers in the Bessemer plant, and that um, Amazon had planned to add more jobs in the state of Alabama. Um, and and this is where they kind of start talking, uh, bringing out a lot of the we do the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Or right, we do the right. $15 wage thing where um, they're already like preempting any sort of worker struggle, uh, especially as they see the pandemic coming directly at them. Like because that's one of the things that a lot of the organizers talked about when it came to moving so quickly through this process is taking advantage of the pandemic as a deep contradiction in the workplace capitalist situation. Y- yeah, because – because one of the most common critiques that I saw throughout all the various postmortems, and I think that there's uh, some validity to it, um, is that the union drive, like the, the, the move to launch the election went too fast and or that when, as we're going to get into, Amazon upped the number of workers, that that was a sign that maybe it was time to, you know, go back to the organizing board and keep grinding and doing more work to, to shore up the numbers before they, they went into the election. But I think that what you were just pointing out is like the pandemic is such a unique scenario, especially when it comes to this sort of organizing, because like, mm-hmm. uh, I understood like, cause I've read some people pointing out like, well, every union drive thinks it's unique. I'm like, well, we are literally in a once in a lifetime global pandemic. So I think that that actually does count as a unique circumstance for one. Yeah. So while I do think that there is some criticism to be had that like, and, and we'll get into this when we get into the postmortems, but like that the speed at which this union drive moved probably hampered it. But it, uh, in other ways it was important. <laughs> so we've talked about before, like, You've never seen the contradictions of capitalism so obvious to everybody as during the pandemic. Right. It's it's never been more clear. And and you to avoid that organizing opportunity. So I I understand I totally understand like the motivation and the thought process behind like that it's never gonna be more insane than it is during this fucking pandemic. Mm-hmm. What I mean, like what easier argument are we ever gonna have to make? 
li- literally earlier today when we were hanging out with some uh, friends in in the, in the Beep Beep Discord, uh, one of them said that uh, he didn't qualify for a vaccine until just now, but yet he's literally been working through the whole pandemic because yeah. he didn't qualify as an essential worker under pandemic guidelines, but he has literally been working ev- like literally through the whole thing. And yeah. I and I don't think that that's a very foreign concept to people. I'm sure that there are people out there listening. If you're listening to this and that's you, I mean, like, I I believe it. I 100% believe it. And so that stuff was all like what was, you know, playing into the decision to like move quick, get in there, right. get the organizing going. But one thing that I wanted to mention while we're talking about like the origin of the Bessemer plant, like as, how this all started, was that. Uh, the setting, the location kind of uh, definitely, I mean, it plays into every union drive, obviously the, the low mat- material conditions on the ground um, are going to affect your organizing effort. And one of the ways that that came into play here was local wage disparities. And because we've talked about in the past, how Amazon weaponized the concept of the $15 minimum wage mm-hmm. to like lower standard wages in warehouse work by like propagandizing how good their job is like their pay is in comparison to, you know, different work and to comparison to like fast food and things like that. And one of the things that helps Amazon when it's doing that sort of propaganda is places like Alabama, where they uh, use the federal minimum wage where it's still fucking seven twenty five an hour. That makes Amazon's anti-union argument so much easier for them to make when they, you know, have all of their various forms of propaganda because they can say, oh yeah, the union says they're going to get you, you know, more money, but you know, you could be working at Walmart making $10 an hour. You could be working at the Burger King making $8 an hour or whatever. Right. And so that, that like makes those state policies, which Amazon itself consistently lobbies to influence, um, Mm -hmm. play a direct additional role on top of their own active anti-union efforts in the passive anti-union pressure that they're able to apply via wage suppression. Right. I think that that's a really important point, especially when you talk about the lobbying arm of Amazon, the interests and the way that they intertwine themselves with the governments in order to suppress wages, in order to affect change directly in these plants where they can use this sort of coercive language but it's uh it's really just like kind of shell gamey in that like hey look this is what you're getting compared to burger king like you said right well it's 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 like putting things in a in a dishonest context right mm-hmm. they're like oh warehouse work probably should be paying 27 dollars an hour but we're not going to tell anybody that and be like look at this amazing 15 dollar an hour job we're bringing to bessemer alabama yeah so so through that basically what is it that that basically makes like fast food like controlled opposition for Amazon in a certain sense because they're well, they, all interested in the lowest amount of wages and they kind of point at each other and they'd be like, uh, oh, but the wages there are this or this and this. But really, uh, they are all spending lots and lots and lots of money to specifically make sure that there are no policies being handed down to change what the minimum wage is or what the wages that people get are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, we were kind of like, this is a a warehouse situation. Uh, We know a lot of the conditions in Amazon warehouses. They're rushed through everything. They have a certain amount of tasks. And if they go too slow, they get demerits. Um, They're constantly surveilled. This is happening at every single Amazon warehouse. On November 20th 
of 2020, which is about seven months after the plant opens, um, the RWDSU made an announcement that there was going to be a union drive in at the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse. I think that that is a pretty interesting timeline because of my personal experience organizing under 20 people in a workplace. We spent a year and a half doing inoculation and other sorts of of training of the workers, especially like Dan mentioned earlier with the 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 push uh, to increase the number of people required or like included in this unionization uh, required to be reached out to. um, It really kind of puts it in perspective because that means that they might've been organizing for that whole seven months. I bet that some of the first people in those job positions were the people who approached the RWDSU and they're like, Mm -hmm. we, we just came to this brand new job in the pandemic And this place fucking sucks. Yeah, well, I mean, they made the announcement on November 20th, and then by December 21st, like, almost exactly a month later, the RWDSU, like, filed. Like, they were moving fast right out of the gate. Uh, And they filed then to represent 1,500 workers. So I don't know if that's the same 1,500 workers that we saw listed as working at the facility in March 19th mm-hmm. of that year, if that just didn't include so, certain groups of workers. At so the, the way that that works is there is a thing called the stip, which is just the, uh, the stipulations of the right. vote. So there, uh, they, they probably handed the cards in on November 20th to the NLR, uh, the NLRB to say, we're interested in having a union election. Now for the next month, the company, the NLRB and, and, uh, the RWDSU, they, they meet to discuss, us when the election will be how many people will be included in the election right. and all of the things that kind of outline what this election is about and within a month we had the there has already been a win from amazon which is the pushing of the number of uh voting members from about 1500 to about 5,800. Right. Um, so when they did that, they were deliberately and grossly inflating the number of workers included because they knew that those uh, union organizers, one, would have to go and collect cards from over a thousand more workers, and two, that they that the the cell of union organizers would have trouble expanding rapidly enough and developing more you know, points of organ, more like, um, what do they call it in when something crystallizes, like more nodes of organizational power in that big of a structure while still sticking to the originally planned, uh, union unionization timetable. So what's interesting about this is the, the, what workers are included in this. And then also we have to remember that, when they were prompted by uh have by this like increase the rwdsu mm-hmm. did still have enough cards at the time to meet the one-third threshold which i believe is the way that it works is that you need a third of the employees to sign cards to get an election if it's over 50 plus 50 percent plus one employee Mm-hmm. then the company has the option to vi- voluntarily recognize. Okay. And what the like the perf- the um the protecting right to organize act would allow card check in that 50 plus 1%. Oh, so they would be they would be recognized if you, right. if you just forgetting the 50 plus 1%. That's what 1%. card check means. Right. Yeah, yeah, so in this case they had cuz the interesting thing cuz cuz RWDSU filed saying 
we want to rep we have enough cards to go in for the 1500 people that work at this place and i i thought it was interesting that lena the article that you found about the job listings when the place opened did say this is about a 1500 employee facility but then suddenly when they're like hey we want to have a union amazon's like no it's not 1500 people it's like 6000 right <laughs> yeah and um, what do we do we know which uh workers are included in that that inflate that number so high I saw I haven't it, seen anything about it. I saw like a, a a few lists in a couple different articles and it's like this includes estimating what the surge capacity of the facility was going to be like during the holidays. So it's like the total number of workers they would cycle through during a typical holiday season, as well as temporary workers as well. It's, it's this gigantic like definition of like every person who might potentially be touched by the facility. And there was also a couple articles I mentioned, they're like that number probably would not have held up under legal scrutiny. Uh, but in order to actually could challenge that, which the RWDSU could have done, it would have taken this lengthy legal battle that probably right. would have gone on for years all while, you know, stalling, their organizing effort. And since they, they, you know, really were like, look, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Now we have the momentum. Now we got to get, get this going. We think we can go get the 30. We think we can deal with this number. Let's go do that. Like the, the 5,800 is bullshit, but whatever. We'll, we'll play their game. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned to me earlier before we were um, recording that Amazon has pretty close to a hundred percent turnover. Yes. Which doesn't mean that every single person is replaced. Everybody who joins uh, quits within a year. Uh, that means that maybe one position will see three different people right in a year right. right and and so collectively it averages out to as many people leave the company every year as they have you know positions and they bring cycle through other people and that makes this whole process just that much more difficult like the on on the organizers for multiple different reasons yeah so I don't yeah. know if the 5800 number is also accounting for the fact that there's going to be people leaving there, but they, they won't be able to vote. And that in there, there will be new people that you'll have to talk to and that right. you're going to end right. up <laughs> having and, to deal with all of these people. And so, yeah, like you said, they have to get 30% of whatever that number is to sign the card that yes, there should be a, a union election. And they were able and so 30% of the 5,800 is something like night 1800 1900 people but they were able actually eventually able to get over 2000 cards signed and that's actually it's going to come back though when we talk about the postmortem so this is one of the first cases right uh, like immediately after they file for the election amazon's like all right let's fuck with this we're going to triple the number of people you think you need to organize uh, actually almost quadruple and so from the moment the RWDSU filed until the election officially started, Amazon rolls out their massive anti-union campaign against the RWDSU. And we've, we covered a, a bunch of, this was something, you know, we, we've been talking about this for the past several months. So um, they have like things that various things that we've talked about that they did. I mean, they brought in multiple, uh, anti-union labor cons- uh, anti-labor consultants um the the union avoidance consulting firms one of whom was listed as quote no maximum billing amount in amazon's <laughs> filings which is essentially here is a blank check destroy the union yeah that just 
covering every spare fucking surface with anti-union propaganda in the plant, putting out, literally buying billboards, telling people to vote no, and then getting into uh, one of the items that we have talked about constantly throughout this show, everyone's favorite anti-union device, the captive audience meetings. Yeah, I I saw this statistic, and uh, as we gathered a lot of the information about the um, the unionization effort, this particular statistic was kind of uh, surprising to me. I mean, not surprising and surprising that it is so significant that, uh, let's see here, I'll, I'll just read this out. Cornell labor researcher Kate Bronfenbrenner found that unions only win elections 40% of the time when employees are held in captive audience meetings, uh, compared to 73% of the time when they didn't. Uh, that is a pretty significant percentage. And again, going back to mentioning the Protecting Rights to Organize Act, the PRO Act, that would actually stop captive audience meetings. Yeah. That would immediately increase the effectiveness of union drives by. A huge amount. Yeah, like the the numbers are pretty stark on that one. Like uh that's one of the most important aspects of the mm-hmm. pro act. And of course, therefore one of the reasons yeah. that without massive worker effort is why it's not going it, it won't pass. Right. And I and I was describing like what the what it's like to be in a a captive audience meeting and uh and I and I was like so what they do is they create groups of people, those groups stay as a group. And go into these meetings, and then the union buster will tell people in that group that people in the other group are saying this thing or that thing uh, right. about about um, you know the union effort or that, and basically to try to pit people against each other. And Dan pointed out to me uh, earlier that that is the same tactic that they use to get false confessions out of people when they're in like being, uh, you know, accosted by the police or being interviewed by the police. Yeah. I mean, you see that in television all the time. It'll just be like, Oh yeah, that guy's been singing all, all about all this stuff. You don't have to tell, we don't really care what you guys do. They all said they're going to vote. No. So whether you guys do or not really doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or just shit like, you know, well, the people in the other group have raised a couple of really interesting concerns and it's just like, how much of the money is coming out of my paycheck again? And it's like nobody in that fucking group asked you that goddamn question. <laughs> yeah. But also in the captive audience meetings, like if you're disruptive, your boss can just be like, you're being disruptive at work and write you up or any other, you know, typical workplace discipline that they would normally do. Yeah. And there was some quotes in here from some workers about like the, the captive audience being just saying, quote, they were harping a lot on dues. They were saying the union's coming in, the union's a business, the money they make is going to be off of you. You're $9 a week. They're going to use that money to buy cars. And they said that the, they were having them weekly. And then one week they were having captive audience meetings every day. Damn. So like that tracks Amazon clearly understands how effective like these are. Yeah. I mean, if they're taking that much time out of the, the day of production uh, and they're spending up to, I think one of these consulting firms was charging $3,200 per consultant per day. (laughs) 
<laughs> Amazon is spending that. That should let you know that they are scared of the union. They're not do- they're not spending that much money to like let you know that another business might take advantage of you. They don't fucking care about that. They're spending that money because they're going to have to pay you a lot more and pay into your benefits a lot more if you form this union. When I did the math for the union buster that uh, we faced for uh, under 20 people, we found out that within a, within about a month, because the whole un- union drive thing, we managed to keep it a secret for a while, and so we managed to make it go a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. But for the month or month and a half that the union buster was in our shop, they paid him about uh, a little over a hundred thousand dollars. Um, damn! For for. Like, and I just imagine that, like, if that money had just gone to us, if we had split that amongst us, we might not have been so upset. <laughs> they, they, they could have right. just given us that. And, right. and I actually think that could have almost squashed the union, too. But that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in attacking workers. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, look, a union buster's ATM pin is visible over their shoulder just like anybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've talked about those those captive audience meetings as being, you know, one of the standard tools that, that companies break out for this because they're so effective. But one of the things I wanted to bring back up that we just talked about a couple of episodes ago, which was one of the facets of the anti-union campaign that, that Amazon did that was most worrying to me at the time when they, when they wrote about it is Amazon's internal app that they have called Amazon A to Z, which is how like their employees interact with the company. And it's how, you know, they distribute, you know, messages, stuff about schedules, all that stuff. Um, So that's something that the workers are interacting with every day. And there was that left voice interview that we, we read a couple of weeks ago where they talked about like how they were just being bombarded every day with anti-union messages on that app. Mm -hmm. Like on Um, your phone, like literally the mobile device that you look at all the time. Yeah. And, and cause one of the things that came out in some of these postmortems was like, there's been a ton of talk about this election in the national press, but how, how much of that awareness is filtered through onto the ground. And, and, and just, I, I want to like reread this paragraph from that left voice piece um, which was, I've noticed whenever I've told somebody that I've been working for Amazon, I automatically get asked about the union automatically. It's gaining a lot of press, but at the warehouse, it's different. They don't really talk about it that much. You have maybe two or three people. that will stand outside on the corner. That's the closest they'll allow them to get. And they'll stand over there with their table and their little signs. And they'll tell you to join the union, but they don't let them close enough to the building to really interact with the workers. The workers have a fair chance to just get swayed by what you get messaged to you on Amazon A to Z and what you see on your table while eating lunch. And so reading that a couple of weeks ago, I was like, Ooh, okay. Like, cause we went into this with the, well, you're going up against Amazon. That's an uphill battle unlikely to begin with. Right. But I mean, I would certainly admit that like through all the reporting on it and the talking about it and some of the inspirational stories from some of the workers on the ground there, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe, maybe it'll happen. And then we had that interview and they were talking about just the absolute all out barrage by, by Amazon on these folks. And that was one of the, the things that really sort of tempered any enthusiasm and that, it, that, it, that it, well, not enthusiasm. Yeah. I but mean, I think optimism. we, we probably, we, we, we probably fell into it a little bit too. The kind of exciting nature of like, this is a huge union battle and yeah. it, this win would be, would mean so much. And, uh, and it, and it would, and I think it's, and it, and it definitely still does. And that's the reason why we're devoting this entire episode to this. <laughs> right, right. But um, I, th- I think that 
we as organizers got a little uh, also wrapped up in the, oh, this is so unique um, kind of rhetoric. Yeah. And so there was another thing that, that they pointed out in there. There was another interesting little story, a part of this drive that, that, that we should just mention briefly, where they talked about the trying to talk to people outside the plant gate. Because obviously, you know, that Amazon does not have to let union, you know, organizers come organize on the plant shop while they're a, not a union shop. Um, and so we talked about this a couple of months ago, but after the union drive started, Amazon went so far as to have the county officials change the timing on the traffic light outside the shop gate. Right. Yeah, this is the most insane thing. And they they suggested when they did it that they wanted it to be that way so that they could more effectively like clear employees out after a shift was over, but it's such a bunch of bullshit because that's the thing is it's like uh, we were talking about that thing in California where there's a law that forces uh, landowners to allow um, union organizers onto yeah. their facilities for X amount of time. And it's like, there's that was the Sam Knight interview. Yeah, there's and exactly. And there's nothing like that in Alabama. And so like fucking Amazon has like complete and total control over the actual property that they own, right? Like if they don't want to let you onto the grounds, they don't have to. And so you have to do shit like stand at the street light and try and talk to people while the light is red. And then they have enough influence, a big enough company like Amazon that they can just fabricate a reason to be like, Hey, make these lights uh, green much more of the time Mm -hmm. and red for much shorter intervals. Yeah. And this is actually one of the bigger things that I wanted to point to when we talk about Amazon being part of the state structure, because they didn't face any sort of pushback from the government. As far as I can tell, the local government, they were able to just go in there and say, hey, you know, it'd be really great is if you made it so that it was harder for people to be talked to at these lights. And then the state just complies. They the it is such uh, it is in the interest of these local governments to coddle Amazon. And we can even remember when Amazon was talking about their second uh, headquarters or whatever and how every single city like bumbled over themselves just to try and like pay Amazon thou- millions of dollars just to be near them. And yeah. how if that really is the case, then that means that. Our states are there to please a private organization where where like union organizers are not le- like they're not legally uh, allowed purposeful. I guess Amazon says they're not allowed, but that's just basically another form of privatization of our state. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that overlaps <laughs> into another one of Amazon's efforts to use its relationship with the state against the union effort. And this is the one that is going to be a part of our WDSU's like claim against Amazon as, as, as their interference in the election. So because of the COVID-19 pandemic and despite Amazon's best efforts, the election was done by mail. Amazon wanted it to be done in person for, as you just said, they have complete control over the plant area. And also Mm -hmm. because if people, you know, don't want to be in a fucking cramped line, going to a fucking voting booth during a pandemic, they're going to be less likely to vote. So when it still became a mail in, um, vote, Amazon 
pressured the USPS to install a special USPS mailbox on their Amazon property so that they could specifically use it as an election drop box, which should not fucking <laughs> be allowed. Like I know it's, I know it's not an Amazon drop box or anything, but if you think a USPS mailbox on Amazon property, something that is only surveilled by Amazon's own security equipment and staff is in any way secure you're fucking lying to yourself. Right. And and we have to go back to rem- remembering the election in the United in the United States here right. when uh we were seeing trucks go and pick up all of these uh like, you know, USPS uh mailboxes in in many different areas and people were rightfully freaking out about that. And it's Yeah. Dan was especially pointing out some of the very strange parallels between the way that the U.S. election happened and the way that Amazon treated this union election. Yeah, yeah well, there's there's so many parallels between the way that our state structure runs its manipulation campaigns and the way Amazon runs theirs. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Amazon doesn't even have to try really to rig this election. If they put that fucking USPS ballot box or, or mailbox or whatever uh, on on the, the facility grounds, then like any fucking douchebag can just walk down there and like mail in a bunch of ballots and Amazon will verify those names as being actual Amazon employees because they're already obfuscating how many people actually work at the facility and for what reason. So they have a a really unprecedented amount of control over the parameters of this election in Mm -hmm. a way that like, you know, any fucking reasonable, I think, statistician would say invalidates the results of the election. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, like there was uh, as the like the thing as the election wrapped up the ability to contest votes and both Amazon and RWDSU was given the opportunity to contest votes. But, uh, I mean, how transparent that was, was like, they was the NLRB basically shouted out a name. And if there were objections, then they would basically just throw it out. Am I wrong? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm belittling the the Um, process a little bit, but I think it's a little more complex than that, but it's not (laughs) that far. (laughs) One of the other things, though, I thought that was interesting about the mailbox story is that it shows how Amazon can go above even levels of the state bureaucracy, because initially when Amazon asked if they could have a Dropbox, they were refused because, you know, as you would think, the post office's regulations are, well, we're not going to put this box on a private facility for that purpose right but amazon is the usps's largest corporate client and just a uh, a couple of days after they were informed by usps that they wouldn't put a box there suddenly usps changed their mind and they sent out an employee to help amazon find the perfect location which they then put it you know they put out the blue box with no usps identification on it in a tent uh, in a parking lot outside the warehouse with a banner that said, speak for yourself, mail your ballot here. All while people are constantly being barraged by this vote. No, you know, stuff on all of their devices, but yeah. no, 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 this is a non-coercive fair environment. Amazon definitely 
stole yes votes for the union out of that box and inserted fraudulent no votes. You cannot, you cannot convince me that they did not do that. That is 1000% what they did. Well, maybe I, I, I mean, I, I think that it's also really important to recognize the power of, of like these coercive constant messaging platforms, like yeah. literally having your phone probably while you're at home, remind you that you're supposed to vote now. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's and, some real psycho shit. And so the RWDSU as part of their, because they put out a video right after the election results came out, um, announcing their intention to challenge and and because of Amazon's illegal interference with the uh, election. And they pointed out in the in their video that they made how there were a couple of huge batches of ballots that came in, like right when that Dropbox got installed. And like, so that's part of why they're tying it to this. They're like, there, there was a total of about 2,500 votes cast and there was, and this is over several months, but right after that Dropbox was installed, there was a couple of days where there were huge multiple hundred ballot influxes from there. And so that's, that's the angle that they're going after. I mean, I I think like, regardless of how much Amazon directly you know, was involved in rigging the election, uh-huh. the indirect rigging of it because of the way that the system allows them to coerce people was already so like, so stacked in their favor. Oh, wow. So just another similarity to federal elections in the United States. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like you can't, the more you, it's like, yeah, both the Democrats and the Republicans try and rig every election they're involved in. Well, and yeah, that's the thing. People, people bring it up. They're like, oh, the Democrats tried to rig this one. The Republicans tried to rig this one. I'm like, it's just a rigging contest. It's just yeah. who rigs gooder. <laughs> Every four years, like <laughs> absolutely. So that's Amazon's anti-union campaign, mm-hmm. uh, and then obviously, you know, you had organizers on the ground going around trying to drum up as many votes as they could. There, we obviously, you know, you had folks like Danny Glover went down to talk about the union, to talk to the workers, Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders, Killer Mike, a bunch of bunch of folks went out to try and support the drive from the the unions side of things. But then I think, yeah, I think that covers most yeah. of the, the well, run up to the actual but then, counting of the votes. Again, rem- remembering that, I mean, Danny Glover talked to probably what, 25 workers yes. out of the, you know, like you said, they have to get 3000 votes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, well, it's not, not specifically 3000 votes. I just want to make sure that we're well, being better than 50% of however yeah. many votes they receive. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. But you want to have 70%. Like when you are actually going into uh, an election, one of the things that you want to make sure that you have before, generally before you even call an election, at least th- from what I was trained in, is that you want to make sure that you've got almost 70% of the workforce as yes votes because you have to expect to mo- to lose a considerate right. portion of them through the union busting campaign. Right. And well, it turns out that, uh, that training was correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because we got the union result, the voting results in last week or right after our, our episode came out, of course. And it came in with a final vote tally of 738 in favor of the union, 1798 against. Um, so you ended up with about 2,500 votes out of that 5,800 total that actually voted. And so there's no real way around the number. That's a big defeat. 
Um, I, I do want to just make one quick point about the date um, of the end of the election. That was about four months before, like between the beginning of the um, announcement of the campaign to unionize and the actual outcome of the election. That's four months of being bombarded by Amazon, four months of union busting, four months of captive audience meetings. It's like that is a way to beat people down. And I mean, if I I, I don't want to um, like just get go past as like all of those things that we pointed out are all tactics that all of the workers faced every workday for four months. Well, and if it's coming in on their phones, maybe even just when they're at home. When yeah. they're trying to enjoy themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, they 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 specifically mentioned, yeah, that they were getting these messages all hours of the day. I, I love it when my proprietary work app gives me <laughs> notifications like fucking bejeweled waking me up at <laughs> two in the goddamn morning. Absolutely. Um mm-hmm. so uh, one of the things I think that sticks out right away from the vote number, obviously, like, yeah, it's a huge defeat. It's about it's about over two thirds voted against the of of those who voted voted against the union and another thing uh less actually than half of the number of people that you know was claimed as part of the workforce actually voted so yet another parallel with common elections here um but so when they got the number from amazon that the number of employees is 5800 that meant that they had to go back and get almost 2000 uh signatures for vote cards but you'll notice we only got 738 yes votes. So that I that was one of the things that stuck out to me right away, and one of the things that uh, there's a that that nation the, there's a really good postmortem that was in the nation that they they mentioned that right away that like to, in order to have the election, Amazon had to present that or not Amazon uh, the RWDSU presented 2,000 cards to show that they had inf- interest in getting the election, and as you said your training would indicate that, you know, you got to get well more than half because you're not every person who tells you they're going to vote. Yes. Is not actually going to vote. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, even with the 70% figure that Lena threw out there, that's only counting on losing 20% out of 70%. So like a little less than a third of the people who are committed to doing it, but a little less than a third of 2000 signed cards is you know, knocked off the top is nowhere near seven or 800 votes. It would be closer to like 1400 or 1300. Yeah. I think that part of this has a little bit to do with that fast turnover and the original push to get this election to move quickly. Why some of the people in the RWDSU originally were interested in making sure that we do this, even though maybe we're not quite prepared, but to use the contradictions of the um, pandemic as fuel for even some of the new people who are coming in, hoping that there is a community effort to radicalize or or even just like partially radicalize these people. Though I think that one of the critiques that we saw through some of these postmortems was specifically that that uh, there wasn't quite enough outreach to the community, uh, places like churches and other sorts of organizations, because Longtime listeners might remember when we originally reported this, this union drive, 
was a reference to the Nissan plant from many years ago where they had lost that election specifically because the company had gone into the town and gotten all of the shops to be anti-union, had gotten all of the the local organizations to be anti-union. And I don't think that we saw that necessarily in Bessemer, but I think that we did see a little bit of a lack of reaching out to those organizations. Yeah. So now that we, you know, we've got through the background, like one of the things that's been coming up is how fast this all moved and the reasons why you would want to do that and the reasons why you wouldn't. And so like now that we've seen like, you know, we're past the hypotheticals and into the postmortem phase, I think that it's pretty clear that even though you had the pandemic as like a very rare accelerant that that was not enough of a substitute as far as a motivating factor for long-term deep organizing, which includes, like you're saying, community outreach. It includes also critically, um, and I think one of the biggest takeaways for this is a consistent history of the internal organizing committee taking direct action well, well before you launch the election drive to demonstrate worker power and to give folks an actual material reason to get behind the union to say, oh, if I actually do this and put myself at risk, there is a benefit to it because look at what these folks who got together were able to do. Right. And in the time that they had to try and do this at a facility with theoretically almost 6,000 workers, they're just... And I'm sure these worker, these, these, the RWDSU organizers were working themselves like to fucking exhaustion, but like, they're just so many people to get in touch with and to try and talk to and to convert in such a small period of time. And for Amazon, who essentially owns the community, sure, they can just throw money at the problem. Well, that's exactly it. It, It's nothing for them to suddenly expand the scope of 1500 to six from 1500 to 6,000 because they can easily get into the minds of 6,000 people quite quickly. For the RWDSU, who are a much smaller organization than Amazon, obviously, it's much harder for them to scale that shit up and devote those resources to that specific of a location uh, really quickly and really effectively, especially when those people already have proprietary Amazon applications on their phones where they can just get two push updates every day saying like, right. The RWDSU wants to take $75 a month out of your paycheck. Isn't that scary? One of the things that you mentioned earlier, Lena, that was like one of the things that you were really focusing on in the run up to the union drives that you uh, participated in was inoculation mm-hmm. was getting workers prepared for the anti-union barrage. And I'm sure that the RWDSU attempted to do that, you know, with workers, but with 6,000 workers in a couple of months, like that's, that task is just, I don't know if it's even possible in that short of a period of time, like no matter how hard you work. Without direct access to the workplace by the union, uh, the, the overarching union, like I, I think that it is impossible because of that daily push. I mean, like, do we think that the RWDSU got a chance to talk to every single voting worker? I actually am going to say no. no. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely not. Um, and, and the community was, uh, like, I don't know if was the, in the 
churches where they saying that we need to like as, as, if anybody's ever watched um mate one the proselytizing kid who's in the church to, like saying you know the, this is the workers uh you know god god you know fights for the workers or whatever like things like that like that matters in a community that yeah, is an well, organizing factor and that is something that you absolutely have to have well those workers they go home to homes with their families in them they go to bars and restaurants and other places i mean not during covid so much but normally they go to all of these community institutions movie theaters parks and if they run into people you know it's like we saw in that uh that that quote earlier where the person from the facility was like if i talk to anybody outside the facility about this they're asking me about the union it's like that's that's a powerful force. You need to hop on that and ride that momentum and 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 blow that up as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because to what you were saying, Lena, in that in the nation piece, the art the author reached out to you know um, like a community groups, church organizations, the, the the sorts of folks that you would think the union would be going for. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were putting together their coverage for this. And they said that quote in Bessemer local community groups that I reached out, reached by phone told me that this was the first union campaign. They could remember that the union reached out for the first time. So late in the campaign, uh, as late as February in other elections in the area, even the Tuscaloosa Mercedes auto plant, uh, ele- election where the plant was 50 miles from the city, a lot further than Bessemer from Birmingham, the unions tended to reach out long before the workers even went public in the campaign, which happened in October in Bessemer. Yeah, and, right. and so I think that's definitely a factor with the speed because I, I'm simple. Cause like one of the, the core things that I saw throughout these postmortems was they move too fast. They move too fast. They move too fast. They move too fast. And I, I, I think we're seeing there's a core piece of truth to that. But the thing that I, I, I do think that we, we need to give the RWDSU folks some, some points for pointing out is the turnover rate, because I don't think that's something that necessarily gets talked a lot about. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Cause what, what ended up happening is they happening as they move too fast, but it's not like they, we should just think, Oh, they were just naive right. about this. Like there were material conditions that were forcing their hand, like the turnover rate, like you said. And also the fact that this was, um, suddenly being expanded to four times as many workers. Yeah, And, uh, one of the other things that they mentioned as far as like aspects about this union drive vice other ones is that as part of that inoculation procedure, getting ready to get folks primed against the, the anti-union drive and as well as just to, you know, expand the base of support of the union. Uh, a lot of union drives will do, you know, house calls, going to talk to people, knocking doors, that sort of thing. But because of COVID, that was not something that the RWDSU tried to do. And then, and I mean, I totally get that, but I feel like, I, I don't know, like you can talk, you can talk to people from their, their front lawn and like, even as a fucking shut in, like it's, you know, a lot more impactful to talk to somebody in person <laughs> right? Yeah. than over the phone. Um, and I don't, don't want to like Monday morning quarterback them on this. I think that's just another way that like the COVID-19 pandemic kind of threw a wrench into this and probably played a role in, you know, adding on to it in, in, so in some ways it was helpful because it exposes those contradictions, but in other ways, as we've experienced in so many other forms of organizing, it makes organizing so difficult to do safely. Right. Well, and like yeah. IRL, like people think, uh, that doing things in person is like less necessary than ever because it's like, oh, we're all interconnected. We have the internet, we have our phones. And it's like, what it really does is it makes 
uh, in-person connections and discussions that much more impactful because yeah, you're you're normally operating with a like a simulacrum of of what human connection is normally like, and that's good. That's useful. I'm glad we have it. But like you know, if you really want to do something important, it's 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 incredibly powerful to sit down and eat a meal so- with someone and have a conversation and like spend an hour or two in their presence and get because like body language, tone of voice, all this kind of shit. Like it it matters a lot more than we generally give it credit for. We went to the bar once or twice a week when doing our union push. Uh-huh. Like we we would we would talk about it once or twice a week and basically have union meetings once or twice a week. Yeah. In person. That rules. Like yeah. that's that's that and and we did win that that particular battle, but like I think that there is kind of a little bit of a a symbol in that of of um importance. Sure. And what you were talking about right there, that sort of organizing hits at a line from an article that actually isn't technically about Bessemer, but that I read in relation to this. It's this article in Rampant Magazine from about a month ago, and it's an article about Amazonians United. It's talking with an Amazonians United worker in Chicago, and they're talking about their organizing efforts where they're not affiliated with a major union. They have an internal organizing structure, and Amazonians United is like now sort of a blanket thing. It's like an affiliation name, but the organizations are all independent. And one of the things that they said in this article that I think is absolutely critical for us to understand here is that unionizing is not a moment. It's a process, mm-hmm. which is like, I think the, honestly, I think is the takeaway to get from this story. If you don't want to go like the doomer angle. And it's also the dialectical way to understand unionizing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because like what you were talking about, Lena, those meetings, like, at the bar, like not at the workplace where like, it's just, you know, just workers actually talking about, like, as you've said before, that's a union. Like that is in the process. That is the process of unionizing. It's not the, a legally recognized union, but that is unionizing. So like, exactly. uh, Uh, clearly I think one of the things that hurt this drive was the inability to do some of those physical acts of unionizing, whether they are, getting together at the bar to talk about this sort of thing or being able to go to people's houses and have, you know, house call meetings with people or, uh, any of the various things that were made more difficult about being together in person and demonstrating worker power that way. That being said, I do think that the Amazonians United folks have some good points about like the ways that they're trying to build their effort. Mm -hmm. Um, and that one of the things that they were consistently pointing out is that like, even if you want to do, and, and, and I think regu- like traditional organizing would agree with this, even if you want to, do, to go for a legal majority union NLRB election, one of the things you've got to do before that is, demonst- is, is not just you know, demonstrations to you know, actually address grievances and build your power, but also demonstrations that show that you actually have a majority of the workers behind you. And not right. just like, here's the cards, but actual like, Cause that was one of the things that, that they talked to the, the folks about is like, um, like w- how public are you going with how many people you have in the union? Because while it's understandable that you would want, that people would want to avoid retaliation, but like part of the whole process of unionizing is demonstrating that through united worker power, 
you will not need to fear that. Right. Like that's how you exercise that power. And so if you, it, the purpose of a system is what it does, if you want to have a union <laughs> at some point, you have to have kind of like a Spartacus moment. Like it might not happen all at once, but you need to have a moment of acknowledgement, which is like, there are enough of us who are interested enough in this, that if you want to take action against us, you have to take action against everybody basically. Right. And some of the, some of the actions that I remember us taking that actually made, um, some of the biggest difference was when we wrote up a letter and everyone signed it. And, yeah. the, and then we yeah. handed that to the boss because, sure, it, there is a lot of power building in going to the bar, hanging out with your coworkers, talking about the issues, saying, hey, we should have more of a say. Let's get democracy in this workplace. That's awesome, awesome stuff. But until you're able to demonstrate that power through mm-hmm. something like a collective action going in, demanding a raise, not just you, you and 10 other people, you and, and 20 other people, a letter with 100 signatures, like like that is where power resides because that shows the boss that you are all together and that they don't actually have as much power as they say they do. And it gives them something to fucking like pour over and be confused about and worry about. It puts them on the back foot. It creates a problem for them. Like they spend all of this time and energy sending people in to, to consultants to give you a, you know, captive audience meetings and they spend all this time. Separate you. Yeah. Paying developers to be like, Hey, send automatic updates to these employees' phones telling them not to vote for this union. It's like the least you can do is hand them a piece of paper where they have to run that shit through legal and have a bunch of meetings about what they're going to do about it because that wastes their fucking time that they would otherwise be spending fighting your actual union. Like... Yeah, that that just rules. It's like literally just taking a swing at yeah, them. Yeah, and that and is a it union. gives everybody something to rally around. It gives everyone everybody something to be like, well, I signed that fucking piece of paper and I still stand by everything that's on that piece of paper. So no matter what the boss says, whatever these consultants say, uh, the, I still back the union and that fucking rules too. Like that's a powerful right. force. Mm-hmm. And right, that in and of itself is already valuable. Mm-hmm. And then on, t- so on top of that, if you are tr- going to be trying to organize an election like this, you got to have stuff like that happening well in advance so that you know, like you don't just have people that like anonymously told you, yes, they support it. It's like you have people who multiple times have come out publicly in favor of this to demonstrate the, the that you have this united block of people mm-hmm. and that. Like by doing those public acts and, you know, not then being retaliated against because you'd have to fire the collective block of workers, which they can't do. Um, then like that is what's going to tell you you're ready for to have your election if that's what you you know want to do. Um, or if you don't want to do like the IWW route right. of no contracts, permanent permanent class war. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's also, it's interesting too, because it's like, I, I think another big failing, and I don't know if this is super particularly relevant to this, but I think that something that could help in general is just like, if you're going to do actions like that, like let's say you do a walkout and you just walk out of the building for an hour or two, it doesn't even have to be the whole day. You can win people over, not even by trying to get sell them on big picture stuff, but just by being like, look, if you participate in this walkout, if you participate in this work slowdown, you can do less work and have the protection of a group of your fellow employees to not face retaliation. Yeah. That's just fucking cool on its own. Right. Yeah. And and, and then then the other the, the the big question I have about this, and Lena, you might know the answer to this, but let's say that they wanted to 
pursue another union drive at this same facility. Uh, if do they need a like a, a legal or otherwise formal ruling right. to to cast doubt on this? And if they don't get that, how long do they have to wait? So the way that the appeal that the RWDSU has put into the NLRB uh, works is that. There is a chance that the NLRB will rule that this election was uh, partially fraudulent or tampered with illegally, mm-hmm. and then the RWDSU can, or not the um, the the NLRB uh, then has the option to either force Amazon to recognize the union or to do another vote. Now, I don't have a lot of confidence in just doing another vote. I I think that um, that is not necessarily the best outcome. But I think that that might be what comes to pass. But assuming like Amazon wins, that there would that that the board says that Amazon didn't interfere and that mm-hmm. uh, RWDSU loses that um, after one year, there is uh, the option to refile. So they would need to get to gather cards again. Okay. And uh, and and it's basically three hundred and sixty five or six days and they are able to vote again now if that will be successful again i don't we don't know i think that the the classic story is the smithfield meatpacking plant where it took them 16 years and three different elections to get their union i don't think that that sort of long-term struggle necessarily uh is appealing to a 100% turnover workforce. It's one of the I'm reasons sure. why fast food, Walmart, other sorts of jobs like that are so effective at shaking unions is because of that sort of high turnover. And like by the time the N- the NLRB rules on this, there is maybe going to be like, I don't know, 100 of the yes votes still at that plant. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I was going to say, even if they buckle down now and they covertly organize for an entire year in the lead up to the next possible election and they pull out all the stops, like they take all the advice, all the actionable advice and all of the critiques to heart, like they're still with the turnover rate and with the absolute control that Amazon has over that region, it would still be a, a resoundingly difficult battle. You know, yeah. and yeah, I I think I mentioned the Smithfield meatpacking plant. I think there's actually a uh, documentary on that particular uh, thing on mm-hmm. uh, Means TV. So yeah. uh, go ahead and grab your Means TV subscription and check that out. It's a really awesome and actually pretty pretty emotionally uh, char- like like strong uh, dem- documentary. There was one other aspect of this. Like I mean, as we're you know going over what happened and what went wrong and mm-hmm. you know the the laying out. What maybe could have done differently, what's going, what, what people should do in the future. One of the things that I, I think that we've kind of made a pretty solid case for so far is that uh, how fucked the labor, how fucked labor law is in the U.S. And how the PRO Act isn't, doesn't fix all those problems, but it would be a big fucking step in the right direction. Right. Yeah. And it would make an actual material difference to people trying to organize their workplaces. And because of that and be, and and seeing how totally on display like this election puts all the issues involved in the the pro act. One of my takeaways from this is that if you, if you're a major union in the United States, really if you're any union, and but if you're a union that theoretically thinks it has any political pull whatsoever mm-hmm. or aspires to 
and you aren't already planning like multiple major work stoppages to demand the passage of the pro act, regardless of what, you know, party your Senator is from doesn't, doesn't matter. Like in the same way that like the eight hour day took like workers making it happen in the same way that, you know, things like and, and although again, that's also been eaten away at, and that's why we need communism. But mm-hmm. like outside of that, mm-hmm. any of these reforms that we want to get past, we, as, as we've pushed on so many times before, you can't rely on goodwill or, you know, electing nice people like the the teamsters the fucking uh i'm not gonna fucking trust the (laughs) afl cio to do this but they trump keeps saying that he's serious about the pro act well motherfucker if you're serious i want to see some big afl strikes yeah yeah definitely but i think that um i put this little snippet in here these this photo grab of a um email article written by uh the robin hood uh investment organization you know the one that like <laughs> did the did the big uh the what are you the gamestop thing or yeah, whatever they kicked and, everyone off gamestop because uh people who were too poor were making too much money in the rich people market right and uh they put out uh an email basically as soon as this news came well it was on the the 12th that said that it was the uh, Sorry, the email was titled Amazon's Union, quote unquote, victory. Now, they're referencing that Amazon is victorious here, uh, like against the union. And one of the things that they point out is that basically upon the loss by the Bessemer Union, that Amazon stock basically went up 2%. Which is outrageous. That's that two percent increase in Amazon stock represents the, more money than the GDP of most middle-sized European nations. <laughs> yeah. Just yes. so you know. <laughs> yeah, and the and the framing of this was seventy-one percent people who voted voted against the union, and and kind of this really um, the anti-worker anti-union thing and this is the the shit that's going out to all your idiot friends who invested in all of those stocks. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to <Yeah>. your friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that shit's bleak. I mean, there was in, in the other parallels to the the state, there was a couple of quotes from workers that Amazon, you know, made available to 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 different outlets after the election where they had a couple quotes quote we already have a seat at the table and we are talking to senior management about things we want to change said will stokes an amazon worker the company made available give us the next hundred days and let's see what happens oh, of course kick the can down the road right and then <laughs> yeah. hold, so hold on. I, I really want to point out again a parallel to the united states election <laughs> right the yeah. first hundred days rhetoric it, it it is pervasive in the United States culture. It's wild how how much that shows up. Because 100 days is long enough for the public to forget things. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> and in the in the same Zoom press conference, they made to they made available another employee, Lavanette Stokes, who in response to a, a, a recent Vox story that highlighted reports of bias and disrespect against black workers in Amazon's white collar workforce, called for quote sensitivity and unconscious bias training uh, for managers. My God. I, have you ever talked to somebody who has worked for a large corporation and has had to head up a sensitivity and bias training meeting? They're like, 
I don't know why they had me do this. They literally gave me no resources and the stuff that they want me to talk about, even I can see through immediately. <laughs> Sensitivity and bias training is something that corporations do to get out of solving the problems that those trainings would need to address. And I want to address this Robinhood email just for a second longer. If, if we'll, I'll post this in the Discord so you all can look at it. But when you're looking at articles about labor movements in general, this kind of like forecasting the market based on whether or not workers are organized enough is so common that you will mm -hmm. like you you see it a few dozen times in a week, and you're just like, that's it. The way to strike at the heart of capitalism is organized <laughs> workers. Like it's just right. obvious on the surface at that point. You don't need to read Marx. Just read the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Absolutely. I mean. So it's, it's disappointing, but you know, we got to take what lessons we can from these like failures. And this is the thing where like, we're going to run into a hell of a lot more failures than we do successes. Sure. And, and the thing that we got to be able to do is take knowledge away from those failures. And so I think hopefully that like, the organizational tactics that we're able to draw from this adjustments that we can make in the labor movement in, in, in anything that, you know, folks are involved in can be profitable for our, like our cause and, and, and make efforts more effective in the future. But there, I think to, to end the Bessemer, uh, stuff, there was a paragraph in this and it is a kind of a segue into our next uh, into, into our outro piece. Yeah. There's a paragraph from that rampant, um, magazine interview with some folks organizing in Chicago and where they're talking about their organizing efforts. And they said, quote, so what's it going to take to unionize Amazon? It's going to take perseverance, humility, and struggle. It's going to take many workers with a deep commitment to organizing spread throughout Amazon facilities, forming OCs, organizing committees, that tackle issues that resonate with coworkers. Every time we win a change through organizing, coworkers see the power of acting collectively. This is how we begin workplace-wide transformations from the standard individualist mindset to a collective mindset. It's how we create a culture of militancy where we're all putting our incompetent managers in their place instead of bowing our heads to their disrespect. Each organizing committee committed to the principles of Amazonians United is the foundation of our union, and we grow from there, collectively developing our strategy and vision as we go. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We do have so yeah, I mean we do have one article before we hit the meme review. This is it's a long one and thank y'all for sticking around. Uh but this this is all super important stuff, honestly. Yeah, so I I, I keep going back to these the this interview with the folks from Amazonians United. And part of that is because those folks are on the ground doing organizing work just like the folks in Bessemer were. Uh, and they're just, you know, they're using different tactics and I think they've got some really good analysis. And as an example of the practice that they're working on, um, like last Wednesday, uh, there was a major protest um, from workers at a Chicago uh, Amazon warehouse um, where they took turns, you know, uh, hit with a megaphone, like hit, talking about their demands. And like you said, John, like, you don't necessarily have to do the most complex organizing tactics. They also every also offered everybody Puerto Rican food, which I think is a really good organizing tactic because <laughs> yeah. Puerto Rican food is delicious. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, food as an organizing tactic in general. I mean, that's just another thing that COVID has really put a dent in, right? As it's like yeah. now if you show up with a giant batch of food, people are suspicious of it and who can blame them? But once everybody's fucking vaccinated, it's going to be a little easier to do this organizing shit. The, yeah. the old saying, what? 
but uh, don't don't eat the boss's lunch unless you steal it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. There you go. Um, so these workers are, uh, you know, they we we've talked about uh, these Amazon's mega cycle shift, uh, and it was actually. Um, organizing efforts by an Amazonians United group formerly at a, a facility called DCH one, which we talked about before they were the, the, their organizing efforts were the stories about that brought the mega cycle shift 1am to essentially noon, just the, the worst possible shift time, uh, to our attention. And so their, uh, demands were quote, uh, Amazon workers here and in Chicago and around the country are being moved to an inhumane mega cycle shift. And they demand schedule accommodations for workers who can't work at night, $2 an hour, additional mega cycle shift pay free lift rides to and from work, which is offered at Amazon's delivery station in New York city and respect for workers, 20 minute paid breaks. Cause we've, we've talked about in so many various Amazon articles about how like the company just basically acts as if breaks don't exist. Right. And so one of their workers continued uh quote the primary demand is schedule accommodations because it's a complete disruption of our lives for those who can't work at night especially if their mothers are taking care of the elderly amazon could make accommodations to people schedule and need it they just don't want to yeah i mean amazon could easily do i mean it's like the thing that covid showed us about working at home right it's like a million and one like quality of life accommodations could be made uh people are in this article are talking about people's schedules people's ability to get childcare transportation to and from work i mean this is basic life shit and the capitalists who run these uh organizations i mean amazon are you kidding me i don't have to tell you how much fucking money amazon makes hand over fist like if it weren't for elon musk jeff bezos would be far and away the richest man in the world after the pandemic and Elon Musk made that money doing the same kind of like crisis profiteering that Bezos is doing. So it's all basically the same. And then you have mm-hmm. people who are propping these companies up who are like fucking, you know, being reduced to conditions no better than living out of their cars some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that one of the things that I mentioned, I wanted to reiterate as many times as possible is that Amazon is a part of the state structure. Yes. Like there, that is a private part of the United States government, basically, where the way that people are living is dictated by Amazon. The way that their uh, living conditions are met is dictated by some random boss. And we have no, like, actual, like, democracy. We have no real democracy here, especially when we're facing things like this. This is one of the things that fascism does under capitalism, which is to create a private state without accountability. This is literally the system that we live in. Well, and it's like literally fascism in so many ways. It's like once you're, once you're incorporating the, the corporate world directly into the state and you don't, and you're eliminating input from the, the proletariat, the common people, the working class, however you want to characterize them. Like that's fascism. That's like the literal definition of it. And then you have people like, who was it? Bill Gates. I think it could have been Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, but I think it was Gates who was like undergoing an antitrust or an anti-monopoly investigation. And his defense was like, you have to let me operate as a monopoly. Otherwise China will beat us. Yeah, that was Gates. Yeah, that was Gates. And it's like, (laughs) that's, that's true. 
you know, but it, <laughs> that doesn't mean that you can just throw all fucking worker protections out the window. Like, I'm sorry, the U.S. is just a declining power. That's just the way it is. Like, deal with it. Saying the quiet part out loud. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly it. Yeah, but so these this is one of those actions that I think represents exactly like what we were talking about is in like this the the worker the amazonian united workers are not recognized as you know an nlrb official recognized union uh-huh. but this is union work like this is yes. the they are a the amazonian united workers are a union and they are doing like work stoppages here so like they may not officially be recognized but like this exact sort of shit this kind of walkout effort you know handing out puerto rican food to get people to listen to your demands that's dope <laughs> like this is the sort of stuff that actually like day to day, like, like, you know, shows people how you can get together and tell the company to fuck off. (laughs) And, and so like, I think the more that they're able to do this, that will give them that power base so that eventually, you know, that every one of these actions is the potential for building the, the power of the workers at that facility. And that has only, you know, the further potential to snowball into a umbrella group across multiple Amazon uh, facilities. Mm. And so I think that the foundation that they're building in Chicago is, 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 is pretty inspirational. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, y'all made it. Thank you so much. We are going to still do the meme review. Hell yeah. Uh, And we've got a couple bangers for you. Yeah, first one's a means TV slash teenage stepdad. I can tell it's teenage stepdad just because the formatting is so good. Uh, <laughs> and it has a it has a or a Burger King worker with a little hammer and sickle on her apron, and it says workers deserve more than fifteen dollars an hour. Workers deserve it all. And then the vintage Burger King logo says everything, and then it says. <laughs> Every fucking every thing. fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then in What's little itty bitty text, text, labor produces everything. Dot dot dot. It's time for workers to get what they deserve. So I mean, like, uh, this is just the power of graphic design. This I I think this is the first meme where I'm gonna say graphic design is my passion, and I'm gonna mean <laughs> it. I'm not gonna be yeah. sarcastic. Yeah, there's at no all. sarcasm. Yeah, this is very. It's a very good piece. This is an exquisitely put together meme because because like it hits all those notes of. If you just glanced at it and didn't read it, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's, I recognize that kind of ad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so very few familiar. people online who are doing this much with just the visual elements of memes. And I, I love Teenage Stepdad, especially with the memes TV kind of stuff. But I also want to shout out to a really great meme page on Facebook called Crazy Dave Tape that puts together just it's not a socialist page it's not even like a a woke page at all but uh the memes are fire they're so powerful (laughs) Uh, so shout out to crazy dave tape uh on facebook nice yeah so Uh, yeah this meme 10 of 10 10 of 10 is rules right um then in in, in contrast literally the exact (laughs) opposite style of meme is next which is like literally black block text over the words to block them out so you can put new words on it yeah and it was originally just a screen cap of a tweet anyway (laughs) yeah and it's so it's like a picture of like what you would visualize someone astral projecting (laughs) laying down with with fireworks in the background holding it American flag that happens to be on fire. I just want to point out. <laughs> Hell yeah. 
And the text on this is the American dream leaving my body when I read history. (laughs) In detail, I think maybe I should go. It's the American dream is what is covering up old text. And so leaving my body when I is the original text and then read history. I, you know what? Join the Discord. Literally any history. Yeah, Yeah, really (laughs) doesn't matter. (laughs) You don't have to be specific. And this one's also really fucking funny. Um, Yeah. But then there's a class, the classic meme of the guy like shrugging and, and gesturing. I don't even remember what the original meme of this is. I think it has, it's like five or six years old. At this this point. is like stock, stock photo, uh, like amalgamation or something Edits. like that. Yeah. yeah. And this is relevant to the, uh, the riots and protests happening in, uh, in Minnesota right now. And it says, uh, they were rioting and looting. Look what they did to the police station. Cause they burned down a police station and the guy's just like, so what? I don't care. Maybe don't kill people next time. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. It's so it's so good. And really, uh I think is a it's a good response. And and it's an easy response. And I think that more people should do this and just tell people who are are um concerned trolling over over property r- bullshit is just like, you know what, go fuck yourself. I don't care. Yeah. Don't don't kill people. Yeah. I, you, this is you're, you're never gonna you're never going to make me give a shit about property damage in these sorts of, I mean, pretty much ever, but especially in these sorts of situations, especially a police station. Oh, well, yeah. Like that shit is insured and owned by the state. Like who gives a shit? Burn them down. Like that's right. Also that will objectively owns the police. Amazon without a doubt. It's that will also make that neighborhood safer. Speaking of police, uh, we have a Forrest Gump meme coming up. It's Forrest Gump sitting on a bench. It's literally just Tom Hanks, on a bench, uh, you know, doing white boy summer shit, I have to imagine. <laughs> uh, and it says, police are like a box of chocolates. They'll kill your dog. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah, it's completely true. They, they will very much kill your dog. Yeah. And then we just wanted to uplift you a little bit with the last one. <laughs> yeah. No, I love these wholesome memes where they like, repurpose the like boot where cause boomers will just take these images that they're like, this is what a real worker is. And then they'll put some stupid reactionary shit on it. Yeah. Well, uh, who's, who's the guy they always do? Sam Elliott, um, the mustache. Sam Elliott. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, from the big Lebowski where he's got the big hat. Which is so funny because he's like such a gentle, understanding character in the big Lebowski. He's he's like such a chill guy and they always put it on there. Oh, you seem pretty stupid. You must think. And then they'll say some dumb transphobic shit or some nonsense. But this one is just got the like, uh, you know, kind of like, like it's a black and white photo of a minor bearded guy dirty face right Yeah, and he's got a real knowing look on his face and you yeah. expect the meme to be smug based off of it like <laughs> yeah like oh you yeah you you know you got your avocado toast maybe you should do some real work that's what you yeah. like that's what this image <laughs> it evokes from the standard memosphere but instead <laughs> we've got you think your job is tough I'm sure you're right. Most jobs have difficult aspects to them. Kudos to you for sticking to it. (laughs) I love these wholesome memes. Uh, And honestly, especially when uh, I see people posting about like uh, personal responsibility or changing your perspective or any sorts of like kind of uh, self-helpy kind of stuff. I just I just want to I post shit like this because Everybody likes the feel goodness and also it does have that tough guy element, which I think is really, really important. 
Yeah, and is really yeah. funny and could possibly sucker some boomers in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, this is the longest episode that we've done. <laughs> yeah. Thank you yeah. all for being here. If you'd like to help us out, make sh- uh, you know help us get this show. Uh, you know. Oh, you know what? I ordered the stickers. So become a patron yeah. yeah. sometime. Uh, I think in the next month I'll get the stickers and I'll start mailing them out. Uh, but got some awesome work stoppage stickers. If you become a patron, become a patron at patreon.com slash work stoppage. Join our Discord. The link for that will be in the show notes. If you would like to do something that doesn't cost you any money, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain, me at Solidarity B, and check out Beep Beep Lettuce John's other podcast and Dan's other podcast, Red Game Table. Thank you so much for being with us. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity out there.